Uh, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we begin our study of the Ten Words of God's Holy Covenant. The Ten Commandments function in different ways in our lives. On the one hand, we could say that they function as a mirror. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. It's by examining ourselves by this standard that we see the depths of our sin and misery. Commandments help us to see how flawed we are. They bring us to the point of recognizing our weaknesses, our failures, our sinfulness. They serve as a barometer. They help us see how closely we are living with God. What we need to understand is that in Lord's Days 34 to 44, the commandments function in a different way. They serve as a rule of thankfulness. Obviously, we cannot discuss the commandments without examining our sins and shortcomings or seeing our need for deliverance in Jesus Christ. Yet our focus needs to remain on something else. God has given us his covenant law to teach us how to live thankful lives before him. It's because he has delivered us from our sins that we are to render our lives as a sacrifice of praise to his name. This afternoon we begin by dealing with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. In this commandment, the Lord teaches us that we are to serve him. He is to be number one in our lives. There's many things that can take the place of God in our lives. Our money and possessions, our job, our family, our holidays, our recreation. And yet the first commandment teaches us God wants our allegiance. He teaches us to trust in Him, to love Him, to serve Him with our whole life. I preach to you God's Word under the following theme. In the first commandment, the Lord teaches us to love Him with all our heart. We'll see that we are to love the Lord alone and that we are to serve Him with an undivided heart. In the law, we see that the Lord makes a series of demands of his people. He commands, do this and don't do that. But what gives God the right to come to his people with a list of ten commandments? Why were God's people expected to obey the voice of the Lord? To make the question more personal, why should we listen to what God tells us to do in the Ten Commandments? What right does God have to tell us what to do? The Ten Commandments don't begin with the utterance of the First Commandment. There is a preamble to the law. Before the Lord begins by telling His people how He wants them to live, He introduces Himself. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You will not have a right perspective on God's law if you do not understand who God is and what he has done for his people. Consider with me the historical situation in which the Lord spoke the commandments to his people Israel. 
some 50 days earlier, Israel had departed from Egypt. God secured his people's release from slavery in Egypt. He did so by bringing a series of 10 plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt. Pharaoh did not want to let the Israelites go. They were his slave workforce who harvested his crops, who made bricks, who built roads and cities. Even though Pharaoh often promised to let the Israelites go, again and again he hardened his heart and refused to do so. It's only by the Lord's gracious intervention that he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. God's deliverance of his people involved not just leaving behind the land of Egypt, but also leaving behind the ways of Egypt. Each of the ten plagues was not just a dramatic sign to Pharaoh that he should let the people go. Each of the plagues also caused destruction and devastation upon the land of Egypt. When you study how God created the world, you see how he brought order out of chaos. How the Lord filled the earth with all kinds of good things. Well, the opposite happens with the plagues. The devastation is so great, Egypt becomes a disordered, a chaotic ruin. Yet the plagues involve more than that. Each of the plagues was actually a defeat of another of the Egyptian gods. The god Osiris, whose bloodstream was believed to be the Nile, bleeds out before his worshippers when the Lord turned the water of the Nile to blood. In reference to Hecate, the frog goddess of birth, Egyptians regarded frogs as sacred. They were not allowed to be killed. But the Lord slew them by the thousands, leaving behind large stinking piles of them. Egyptian gods governing fertility, crops, livestock, and health, they're all shown powerless before the almighty outstretched arm of God. In the plague of darkness, the Lord demonstrates his rule over the sun god Ra, whom Pharaoh was believed to embody. And in the final plague, the death of the firstborn, the Lord shows himself supreme over the entire pantheon of Egyptian gods by demonstrating his power over life and death. Israel had been in slavery for 400 years. In many ways, they had lost touch with the Lord the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Living in Egypt, they became familiar with the Egyptian gods and they began to serve them. Yet through the ten plagues, the Lord topples all rival gods. He showed his people the powerlessness of Egypt's gods. God brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When Pharaoh and his armies chased after them, the Lord brought them through the Red Sea, and he drowned Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen in the midst of it. And so the Lord made a dramatic statement, I alone am God. The so-called gods of Egypt are nothing more than vain idols, figments of human imagination. When the Lord reveals himself at Mount Sinai, he does more than say, I alone am God. In the introduction to the law, he says, I am the Lord, your God. 
How could the Lord say that? It's because of the covenant that he established with Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord had promised to be their God. He had promised to make them into a great nation and to give them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. God had seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. He had heard their cry because of their taskmasters. It was because of his steadfast love and faithfulness that the Lord delivered his people from slavery. In the first commandment, God tells his people, you shall have no other gods before me. In this commandment, the Lord teaches us to love him alone. He does not want our allegiance to be divided between him and other things that rival for our attention. In the first commandment, the Lord not only claims that he is superior to all other gods. He's not just saying he's stronger than other gods. What the Lord teaches us is that other gods simply don't exist. Isaiah 45.5 makes the point beautifully. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. If other gods don't exist, why forbid serving other gods? Why say you shall have no other gods before me if there's no such thing? Well, it's because by nature, we as people were created to worship. God made us as worshiping creatures. Each of us will worship someone or something. Those who do not know the true God will invent substitutes in his place. That's why the Egyptians served their whole pantheon of gods. It's why the Canaanites worship Baal and Asherah. The Philistines worship Dagon. And the Moabites, their god, Chemosh. Throughout the ages, people have worshipped powerful forces within creation as if they were gods. Looking at the example of Baal will help make this clear. Who was Baal? Well, the Canaanite nation saw him as a god of rain and thunder and fertility. When they needed seasonal rains for their crops to grow, they called out to Baal to give them rain. And when the rains fell, they worshipped him and they offered sacrifices to thank him for his blessing. We see that while in actual fact Baal was nothing more than a figment of the people's imagination, his worshippers thought he had the power to give them life. The truth that there is only one God, that he is to be worshipped, is something that needed to settle deep into the bones of God's people Israel. They'd come out of Egypt, which saw many of the forces of nature as gods. And they were going to Canaan, where the people served many different gods who also embodied the forces of nature. The Lord's call to serve him alone was not a new idea for Israel at Mount Sinai. The creation account itself contains an implicit command not to worship sun, moon, or stars, the earth, sea, or sky, plants, animals, or humans. They are all but created things. We are called to worship the Creator instead. But as God's people, it's easy to forget and to fall into idolatry. 
This afternoon we read together part of the story of Jacob in Genesis 35. Jacob had left his parental home more than 20 years earlier when Esau wanted to kill him. At Bethel, the Lord had appeared to him in a dream, promising to be with him and to bring him back to the promised land. Jacob went through great struggles in his faith, which culminated in his wrestling match with God at Peniel. There he learned more than ever before to put his trust in the Lord. But Jacob was slow to return to Bethel. He had promised the Lord that if God was with him and brought him back from his uncle's place, he would worship him and give him a tenth of all that he had. It's not until Jacob's sons had killed the man of Shechem and Jacob needed to escape from there that he went back to Bethel. Genesis 35 tells us before he went, Jacob needed to take care of some unfinished business. Between his exile in Paddan Aram and his return to Bethel, Jacob and his family had picked up some idle stowaways in their saddlebags. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Jacob knew he could not go to Bethel and build an altar to the Lord, and worship him, along with other gods. He and his family were wrong to operate with the mentality that they would serve the Lord, but also, just in case, they would also offer devotion to other gods. Here we see the challenge of the first commandment, beloved. For like Jacob, we are inclined to operate out of a both-and mentality when it comes to whom we will serve. Do you love the Lord? Of course we do. But do you love the Lord to the exclusion of all other things? Do you love the Lord so much He's more important to you than your money and your possessions? The reason Jesus told us you cannot serve both God and money is that our hearts can only have one allegiance. Who or what is number one in your life? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put your trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. With our sinful hearts, we can make anything into an idol. Habakkuk 1.11 teaches us that some glory in their own strength and power. Philippians 3.19 speaks about how some make their stomach their God. In that passage, Paul is not just referring to an appetite for food, but to any of our fleshly desires. The alcoholic's God is his bottle. He depends on it in order to escape from the realities of life when the going gets tough. Others seek their comfort in drugs or sex or in relationships. The desire for power or the use of logic and reason or the adoration of nature or a reliance on customs and traditions. Any of these things can become false gods. In Genesis 35, we see that Jacob's family gave him all the foreign gods they had, and Jacob buried them under the oak tree at Shechem. 
Jacob could have destroyed these idols in many different ways, by hacking them to pieces or burning them. Instead, he buried them under a landmark tree known as a place of idol worship. Determined to put the past behind him, Jacob symbolically holds a funeral for the idols in the place where they were normally worshipped. Symbolically, he puts them to death. That, beloved, is what we need to do with the things that so often captivate our hearts. We need to put to death what's earthly in us and devote our hearts to God alone. The Lord calls us to love Him and not to allow anyone or anything else to get between Him and us. We see that the choice to serve the Lord must be a radical choice. It cannot be both the Lord and some other God. It needs to be either the Lord or whatever else. Serving the Lord, that means loving Him. It means putting our trust in Him. It means living our lives for Him. Beloved, do you know why the Lord calls us to love Him alone? Well, it's because He first loved us. The introductory words of the law make it clear. Just as the Lord brought Israel out of slavery, so He has done the same for us. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from the slavery of sin and Satan. Christ redeemed us with His precious blood. This shows our motivation for keeping God's commands. We're to do so out of thankfulness for His redeeming grace. We pledge allegiance to God alone because He is the one who saved us from death and how. In our first point, we've heard God's call to love Him alone. In our second point, we'll see that we are to love Him with an undivided heart. When we read through the Bible, we see that some of God's people are commended because of their sincere love for the Lord. Genesis 5, 24 tells us that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 6, 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his, in his generation. Noah walked with God. When the Lord describes his servant Job to Satan, he said, There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. David is described as a man after God's own heart. At times we have trouble with these descriptions. Was Noah really blameless? Was Job blameless and upright? Were these saints truly without sin? No, beloved, that's not the point that the Bible is making. These men were imperfect. The Bible speaks about specific sins that each of them committed. Just think of Noah's drunkenness, of Job's accusations against the Lord, of David committing adultery and murder. And yet the point the Bible wants to make when speaking about these men is that they served God with an undivided heart. They were wholehearted in their service of God. This afternoon we read together from James 4. What James addresses in this passage is how easy it is for us not to be wholehearted 
in our service of God. That can manifest itself in different ways. James begins chapter 4 by asking what causes quarrels and fights among God's people. The problem is that our passions are at war within us. We want things. We're willing to fight and even murder to get them. We covet stuff and we quarrel and fight to get it. Our sinful passions often get in the way of wholehearted service of God. A second problem we face is that we're tempted by what this world has to offer. James addresses his people, his readers, as adulterous people. He doesn't call them adulterers because they were having sex outside of marriage. He was calling them adulterous people because their hearts were not faithful, were not devoted to God. Often they loved the world and what the world could give them more than they loved God. That's why James writes that friendship of the world is enmity with God. If the comforts and the pleasures of this life mean more to you than God and obeying His commands, you make yourself an enemy of God. James goes on to speak about how God yearns jealously over the spirit He has made to dwell in us. God created us uniquely among all the other creatures He has made. He made us of the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into us. Unlike the animals, we were created with a body and a spirit, also called a soul. God deeply desires that our spirits worship Him. As Jesus said in John 4, but the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And then James issues this call. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. God calls us to submit our hearts and our lives to Him. He promises that as we draw near to God, God will near, draw near to us. The more we live in close communion with the Lord, the more we will experience His grace and love in our lives. To do that, James requires us to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, to turn away from sin, to be single-minded in our devotion to God. So, beloved, how are we to love God with an undivided heart? The only way to do that is by knowing Jesus Christ. He loved the Lord purely, with an undivided heart. He walked in all God's ways, without swerving to the right or to the left. He never fell into any of the temptations Satan set before him. Jesus Christ kept the law of God perfectly. It's a wonderful comfort for us. For with all our sins and shortcomings, we see our need for a Savior. Jesus has offered up His body and blood 
for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Let this inspire us to live thankful lives before the Lord our God. He has delivered us from our sins and has set us free from the mastery of Satan. We don't need to be slaves in a quest for money, in a quest for pleasure. Slaves because we lust after, because we rely on created things instead of the Creator. By His Word and Spirit, God has transformed our lives. Instead of being slaves to sin, Christ has made us alive. By His Spirit, He enables us to be devoted to God. Let us love the Lord with all our heart. Let us serve Him with joy and thanksgiving. For He is our God. There is no other God beside Him. Amen.